Facing the Future of International Arbitration, a CMS series exploring the evolving challenges and innovations in international arbitration. Welcome everybody to the third in our series of podcasts on facing the future of arbitration. In our last two podcasts, we discussed the amendments to the ICC and LCA rules. Now, today, we're going to take a different area of practice, and that is the practice of witness statements. That is a practice that's pretty common in international arbitration, usually in the form of written statements. And the practice is typically maybe a witness interview, and then the lawyer might produce a draft witness statement for the witness to then review, approve, and sign. And how long that takes might depend on the complexity of the subject matter, the volume of documents involved, and perhaps the duration of time that the witness is giving evidence over. So is there a problem? Well, it could be said that um, science uh, has got ahead of the law and the law is now catching up because the concern is that human memory is malleable and the involvement in witness statements in the lead up to an evidentiary hearing, including in the production of a written witness statement, is actually running the risk of distorting their memory. Now, this is an important issue because most lawyers have ethical duties not to interfere with evidence. We have a responsibility to ensure that the best evidence is presented before a court or tribunal uh, and that it is uh, their evidence or the witness's evidence and not anyone else's. So how then can a diligent practitioner manage the process of collection and presentation of witness evidence without running into problems of uh, witness uh, memory distortion? Well, today's discussion follows uh, a report on this topic by a task force of the ICC Commission in November 2020. Now, international arbitration isn't the only place where there are concerns about this. In England and Wales, uh, changes have been made to the civil procedure rules uh, and practice directions on the production of written witness statements as well. Today, I'm pleased to say that I have two experienced practitioners with me, Nicholas Zag, who's a partner of CMS's Zurich office, and Jeremy Witt, who is a, uh, now based in Australia after spending a number of years in our Middle East and Singapore offices, uh, and also a partner. Both Nicholas and Jeremy are very experienced in international arbitration. But the reason I've asked them to discuss this topic is because Nicholas is a civil trained lawyer with experience in common law jurisdictions, and Jeremy is a common law lawyer with experience in civil law jurisdictions. And that's relevant to this topic because there are differences in the routings of the production and presentation of witness evidence between the common law and civil law systems, and that inevitably influences practice in international arbitration. So let's start with that. Uh, So a question for you both. Uh, how is witness evidence presented and used in uh, in your uh, local courts uh, and in international arbitration in your jurisdictions? Nicholas, maybe we can hear from you first. Yes, thank you very much, Guy, um, for that and, and the introduction. Um, the importance that is attached to witness evidence before Swiss state courts varies significantly from what we see in the context of let's say, Swiss-style international arbitration proceedings. Yet, when I refer to Swiss state courts, I have to be somewhat more precise. Despite the existence of a Swiss civil procedure code, core practice still differs 
considerably from one canton to the other in Switzerland. What I can say for my home canton, being the canton of Zurich, uh, is that witness evidence only plays a minor role uh, in court practice. Although the law does not provide for the supremacy of documentary evidence, it is my experience that the vast majority of judgments and conciliatory court assessments are effectively based on documents rather than witness evidence. If witness evidence is being adduced, the court and not the opposing counsel will interrogate the witnesses. This is done without a party having submitted any sort of written uh, witness statements beforehand. This practice contrasts uh, with the practice in uh, Swiss-style international arbitration proceedings. In these processes, uh, written witness statements and cross-examinations are more often than not part of the usual evidence-taking process. However, my feeling is that uh, witness testimonies are still considered useful primarily for the proof of disputed facts that cannot be established by documentary evidence. Witness statements for the sole purpose of providing context or explaining documentary evidence are far less frequent. Thanks very much, Nicholas. So no written statements in civil proceedings, uh, questions by the judge, written statements in international arbitration, but generally less emphasis on them. Thank you. Jeremy, let's hear from you. Thanks, Guy. So the Australian courts um, follow the English uh, common law tradition and traditionally uh, the evidence, uh, factual evidence in court has been led by a party um, through oral evidence, which is then tested under cross-examination. Um, the historical way of doing this, much as, as was the case with the English courts and many common law jurisdictions, was for your evidence in chief to be given um, orally and this to be adduced by a very skilled counsel, getting this out of the witness, but without asking leading questions. Um, the courts have simplified the process quite a lot um, over the years, as they have in England and Wales and other common law jurisdictions. So now the common way of, of witness evidence being given from a factual witness is for a witness statement to be given um, and for that to stand as evidence in chief and then cross-examination to take place on that. Um, documentary evidence is still very important, um, but it's generally not given the same level of importance that it is in a civil law system. Um, my experience in civil law systems has typically been in Middle Eastern systems, which differ somewhat, again, from the continental European systems that Nicholas has referred to. Um, the hearing and testing of factual witness evidence in the Australian courts, though, much like in the English courts and other common law jurisdictions, takes up a very significant period of time and tends to um, absorb a large amount of preparation time and costs from the parties in preparing for a hearing. In international arbitrations with Australian or English seats, my experience is that the practice is very similar um, in relation to witness evidence as it is in the courts, but with a great deal more flexibility um, in that the arbitrators are not bound by the rules of evidence. Um, and in my experience acting in arbitrations in Middle Eastern jurisdictions, there's even more flexibility. Um, and the practice Nicholas mentioned of having um, a, a judge administer questions under cross-examination, you will quite often see a, a similar approach um, taken by civil law trained advocates in international arbitration in those jurisdictions where they might try to have the tribunal put those questions rather than do so themselves. 
Thanks very much, Jeremy. And uh, you mentioned that the practice originally in Australia was to have examination in chief, so no written witness evidence as well. And of course, that was the practice in, in the UK. Uh, and it's difficult to say when the concept of written witness statements came in. Um, certainly, we, it's been around since the IBA rules in international arbitration and for uh, probably at least as long in many jurisdictions. But of course, I think when that happened, there perhaps wasn't the appreciation of what the process of the production of a written witness statement would actually do or potentially do to that witness's evidence. And you can understand perhaps why that practice originally of just getting the witness in the witness box and taking their evidence as evidence in chief without anyone having really talked through their evidence in detail could potentially be a beneficial way, but it's also very time consuming and creates presumably quite a lot of uncertainty for parties. So thank you both for that. Let's turn to the ICC task force report itself. Um, what are the concerns that the report seeks to address and what are its findings? Jeremy, let's go to you first. Thanks, Kai. I think it's really key to note that the report didn't advocate for a one-size-fits-all approach and has not sought to establish prescriptive rules as to how um, issues with memory distortion or factual evidence should be dealt with. Um, but from my perspective, the key takeaway coming out of the research that was done in preparation of the task force report was to demonstrate just how malleable human memory really is and, and the potential weaknesses that flow from that. Um, in particular, the task force report refers to research showing just how influential post and pre-event information can be. Um, and the report noted that much of the research that they considered, which had been done in the past, dealing with uh, how reliable witness memory was, was done in the context of criminal matters, um, where the circumstances will generally be an eyewitness observes an event over a relatively brief period of time and is then asked to recall that sometime later as opposed to um, what we would consider to be a civil proceeding um, in uh, our jurisdictions where the events might happen over a very significant drawn out period of time. Um, and so a witness's memory will be formed um, over a much longer period than is the case with criminal matter. Um, the research that was done by the ICC task force for this report indicated that something as seemingly um, simple and innocuous as a witness discussing their evidence with someone else who had no recollection of the events and had not been there, um, could cause misinformation to creep into their memory, um, which I found quite interesting in the context of people not even having been there. Um, otherwise, misinformation could creep in um, were perhaps things we would more typically expect, um, including talking to co-witnesses, in which case there was the risk for a witness to take on information from others who had um, observed events um, and take on memories of events they themselves had not observed, um, as well as the risk of being influenced by media reports. Of particular concern was that the research showed that in some cases, participants could be induced to recall, and I use the term in inverted commas, um, entirely fabricated events that had never happened to them, um, as though they were genuine and correct memories, which could have very serious implications, obviously, for the quality of evidence and the outcome in the proceeding. The report also indicated that the questions uh, presented to witnesses could cause a significant impact on the answer given, depending on just one or two qualifying words and how that question was actually presented, such that uh, there was an example given where people were asked how long a movie was, as opposed to how short a movie was, and they gave a difference on average of about 30 minutes. Um, so obviously, you know, this is just one example, and it's it's in a controlled environment, not aimed at a commercial proceeding as such. But it does show just how malleable memory is um, and how 
people can be susceptible to inferences um, in, in how counsel perhaps puts a question to them. So the science underpinning the report demonstrated that human memory is not just fallible, but that there's a very significant risk of memories being distorted at times very significantly um, in what would appear to be very innocent manner, uh, but that this could significantly alter the evidence that a witness would be able to give um, and that they would completely um, believe the evidence they were giving was truthful um, with, with absolute good faith and, and no um, understanding that there might be significant distortion in the memories as, as they're now relaying it. Thanks very much, Jeremy. And uh, and what you bring out is, is quite an important one for us as lawyers, because even when we interview a witness with no background knowledge of the case, what we are potentially doing is unpacking their evidence, their memory, uh, and, and hearing it. And, and what we hear now is that that has the potential of itself to create uh, a memory distortion. Uh, and of course, overlay that if someone might be, for example, an employee of a party to the proceedings, and they may have an appreciation of perhaps uh, what their issues are in dispute and, and what, what a company's position might be in relation to that. And you can readily see how the difficulties arise. And then, of course, you have the complexity of the cases that um, are typically handled in international arbitration, which don't necessarily lend themselves just to the same way in which a witness would give evidence. So there are some quite challenges here, as we can see. Nicholas, uh, do you have anything to add? Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, it was also very interesting uh, for me to learn how big the influence of supposedly insignificant circumstances in interviewing uh, witnesses can be with regard to the distortion of uh, witness memory. And uh, for me as an arbitration practitioner with a civil law background, it was also particularly enlightening to see how diverse the purposes behind witness evidence can be and that accurately establishing the relevant facts is not always the primary goal of uh, witness testimonies. Rather, as it is noted in the report, witness evidence can also be useful to provide uh, context or explaining documentary evidence. In civil law jurisdictions, uh, we usually provide such context in our memorials without necessarily uh, resorting to witnesses. Awareness of this circumstance should, in my view, be enhanced to allow for an even more sophisticated assessment of the probative value of witness testimony. Yeah, thanks, Nicholas. And, and actually, I think you raise a point there, which perhaps is a bit of a difference, and that is in the common law tradition, um, uh, you would never typically see submissions being made, including evidence, unless there is something that actually underlines that, either in the form of a witness statement or some supporting documentary evidence. And there is perhaps a question as to whether that is the right thing to do, if actually ultimately what's happening is witnesses are being used as a tool to present evidence before the court, but in the process of doing so, is that actually resulting in their real, pure evidence somehow being distorted over a preference to perhaps give a fuller picture of the events. And I, I don't think we have a resolution for that yet. All right, so that highlights perhaps the problem. Um, the question then is, is there a solution to this? So what recommendations did the ICC task force make? Nicholas, you first. Yes, thanks, um, Guy. The primary recommendation of the ICC task force is to enhance uh, awareness of the circumstances under which memory distortion with a witness are likely to occur. The report contains some very useful scientific-based explanations in that regard. For example, 
I found it particularly interesting to read that contact between a witness and post-event information, be it in the form of written documents or interaction with other participants, often has a significant impact on a witness's recollection. Likewise, uh, various studies tell us that the account of the facts by witnesses very much depends on how the questions submitted to them are being phrased. And Jeremy has, has mentioned that before. Second, according to the ICC task force, um, there are many measures that can be taken by witnesses, in-house counsel, external counsel, as well as arbitral tribunals to reduce the risk of memory distortion. So measures to consider by counsel when preparing witness statements are interviewing the witnesses at the earliest opportunity and individually and asking them open and unbiased questions. Another possible action is encouraging the witness to provide as detailed and complete information as possible in the first interview in order to avoid unpleasant surprises at a later stage of the process. However, as Jeremy just mentioned, the report also makes clear that none of these recommended measures uh, is one size fits all. It is therefore emphasized that a case-by-case -case assessment is required to determine which steps are appropriate. Finally, and here I come back to my earlier comment, the report intends to raise the awareness that witness evidence may be presented in arbitration proceedings for different purposes, some of which do not pri primarily focus on the accuracy of witness memory. Where this is the case, it is recommended by the ICC task force that we should not really be concerned with memory distortion. Thanks, Nicholas. And um, I think the issue around uh, post-event information um, and the presentation of documents to witnesses is actually a really important one, which um, I think we should come on to in a moment. But Jeremy, let's hear from you first. Thanks. Thanks, Nicholas. Thanks, Guy. Um, a couple of the key takeaways for me um, in terms of the recommendations were, that were made uh, were in relation to, in the case of in-house counsel, um, how they can act as gatekeepers um, and minimize distorting influences by encouraging uh, people who they deal with in their companies um, or by establishing procedures for ensuring that contemporaneous notes are kept um, at the time events unfold, especially in a contentious environment or even in a, a potentially contentious environment. Um, as, as you know, Guy, I do a lot of my work in large-scale EPC projects. And so this one really resonated with me because I've had the experience of acting for site managers and project managers who kept very detailed daily site diaries, um, which recorded in great detail what happened on site um, and in relation to issues and events as they unfolded. Um, and I've also had the experience of acting um, where witnesses did not keep that kind of detailed information. And it makes a very significant um, difference in the recall of a witness um, at the initial stages, albeit that the, their memory may be formed somewhat by looking back over their own records as opposed to purely from, from their own recollection in their memory. Um, in relation to the preparation of witness statements by counsel, the task force noted that this could have the effect of distorting the witness's memory somewhat, but also pointed out it could be useful in helping a witness convey their evidence to the tribunal. Um, this could particularly be the case where you're dealing with witnesses who sometimes uh, are proficient in two, three, four languages at different levels and might be working in something other than their native tongue. Um, but I think a really important point that was raised by the task force 
was to ensure that unconscious bias doesn't creep in and that tribunals and counsel um, aren't biased against the evidence given by a particular witness because it seems somewhat clunky or unpolished. Um, that may be simply a reflection of very genuine memory from someone who is less proficient in the language, um, while a very polished statement could well be indicative of prior performance and rehearsal. Um, and finally, um, one of the last um, recommendations, which I thought was quite useful, was in light of the effect of phrasing a question on witness testimony, um, it may be preferable to ensure that open-ended questions are used um, by counsel for a party when they are getting evidence from that party's own witnesses, as opposed to specific or leading questions, which could tend to distort the evidence and lead to a particular conclusion. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, and I think your point about the role of uh, corporate counsel, in-house counsel in this process is really important because it is quite likely that the first contact witnesses are going to be having with lawyers will be their own in-house counsel. On the documents point, um, uh, one of the challenges that seems to me for practitioners who are routinely doing complex, very complex uh, international arbitration it is that actually uh, the production of a witness statement is never an, a simple and straightforward exercise because you're asking witnesses to cover a lot of complicated detail, possibly over long periods of time. Uh, and inevitably, as you've already indicated, Jeremy, um, some individuals will have um, meticulously kept their own records of certain events uh, during the course of a particular project or a programme. Others may not, and therefore may benefit from uh, the documentary record in terms of refreshing their memory, if I can use that term. But I, I can see now that that, that raises a, a challenge, perhaps for all of us, in terms of how do we how do we deal with that in in the production of a statement. And I'm sure we've all been in this situation where it's quite apparent that a witness's own recollection, their original recollection, cannot be correct when you look at the documents uh, and actually when you show the witness documents these will inevitably or it will routinely be documents that existed at the time and they immediately see them and they say oh yes no of course actually that's right i now remember x y and z and actually the, it seems to me that the, the the exercise that we really haven't yet grappled with within this report or how we go forward is that interplay between original uncut memory if i can call it that and then actually what becomes perhaps a refreshed memory but is potentially or i would say maybe even more likely to be a more accurate um, exercise and actually a concern that there could be a swing the other way which is actually that the witness's original memory is so important that that's what we get down but i think my concern there is i think you were exposing a witness and you're exposing a party to needless cross-examination against documents on points that if the witness was given more of an opportunity to reflect on their own evidence, of course they would have uh, the opportunity to, to refresh their memory properly and give better evidence to the tribunal. So there is, a, there is a tension here, it seems to me. So a question perhaps for you both again is, what impact is all of this actually going to have on practitioners and parties from your perspective? So Jeremy, you first. Thanks, Guy. I think the changes I would make would depend on the hat I'm wearing at the time. Like you and Nicholas, I not only act as counsel in international arbitrations, I also act as an arbitrator from time to time. Um, and so obviously that's going to influence uh, my perspective. Um, but whether acting as counsel or tribunal member, 
I think we can all agree that we want to see accurate and correct evidence form the basis of the award that's ultimately given. Um, and the opportunities to minimize evidence distortion are likely to be different depending though on whether you are acting as a tribunal member or if you're acting as counsel in a given hearing. As counsel, um, and I suppose more so with the role of in-house counsel, who will often be the first on the scene, as, as you mentioned, I think it's key to have the witnesses write down or record as complete an account of what they witnessed um, as soon as practicable after the events occurred, um, just to ensure that they've got a written record of everything they recall as soon as possible before um, post-event information starts to distort that significantly. Um, what's I think more interesting though to consider is what could happen going forward following this report if for instance tribunals um, decided to take things to the nth degree. Um, and, and I'm not suggesting it will happen, but we could see some very prescriptive procedural orders being made. Um, for instance, orders forbidding leading questions being asked of witnesses in the preparation of their witness statements. Um, alternatively, and it would uh, add a lot of time and complexity and cost to hearings, um, if a tribunal was really concerned about the risk of leading questions, um, there's no reason that they could not, subject to the parties agreeing otherwise, um, require evidence in chief to be given orally in the old common law fashion. Um, or indeed, we could see oral evidence given at an earlier stage, um, but recorded. So for instance, the deposition model, which is quite commonly used um, in the United States courts. Given the impact that, that would have on the length of hearings, though, it seems highly unlikely that that type of measure would be widely adopted. Um, but it is something which would potentially arise in certain circumstances. Another possibility is that a tribunal could order the parties to provide a list of all of the documents which were viewed by witnesses in preparing their witness statements, um, as well as uh, an indication of at what period in preparation of the statement that document was provided to them, um, on the basis that giving only certain documents to a witness which are favourable to a party's case could obviously skew the evidence, and then also on the basis that um, the evidence could also be tainted or um, impacted by the timing at which certain documents are provided to them. Thanks, Jeremy. And in a moment, I will come back on that question of what, what the tribunal may or may not do and, and whether they become prescriptive around um, contents of procedural orders. Uh, but Nicholas, let's hear from you first. Yes, uh, thanks, Guy. Uh, I think this uh, ICC report just marks uh, the beginning of, of a journey um, with regard of how we will handle this, the type of witness evidence uh, in the future. Um, because I think we should be aware that the report does not claim to establish guidelines, let alone to reflect any sort of best practice. I therefore assume that the report's short-term impact on future arbitrations uh, will be rather limited. However, the report provides some very useful food for thought um, that will certainly help counsel to further refine witness interview techniques. Moreover, I would not underestimate the report's awareness rising uh, effects as pointed out uh, by Jeremy before. It is thus likely that the report will prompt further discussions on the proper evidentiary assessment of witness testimonies. Looking to the further future, I think it's possible that some of the ICC report's findings and recommendations will at some point in time be reflected in the practice of international arbitration. It may, for example, be that arbitral tribunal will require parties in their procedural order number one to give written account of how they have interviewed uh, their witnesses. 
This could include, as Jeremy mentioned, uh, a list of all documents shown to the witness, the identity of the persons being present uh, at the interview, the place of the interview, or a confirmation that the witness was not put under any sort of pressure or was not asked any leading questions. This may now sound a bit uh, formalistic and burdensome and not really conducive to the, the aim of making arbitration processes more efficient. And I think we should really be uh, concerned about efficiency of arbitration proceedings as we should keep this dispute resolution mechanism attractive uh, for, for its users. Uh, however, I think these requirements are not entirely new ideas. Uh, they form to a large extent part of current court practice in Switzerland. And the Swiss Federal Supreme Court has repeatedly uh, approved these, uh, these criteria to be followed uh, when co contacting witnesses. However, and uh, here I come back to what Jeremy uh, has just mentioned, I deem it rather unlikely that direct examinations will be shifted entirely from the level of the written witness statements to comprehensive examinations in chief at the hearing. The possibility to interview witnesses before initiating legal proceedings is a major element in properly preparing a case and setting procedural strategy. Indeed, it is often only after having thoroughly interviewed witnesses that the chances of prevailing in a case can be assessed in a meaningful way. Uh, thanks, Nicholas. And, and on that last point, I'm going to ask you both a question. Uh, and, and that is, if you um, if you agree that actually the the um, the more you unpack a witness's evidence um, for the purpose of producing a written statement, the more risk you have of creating some form of of memory distortion. Um, it could be argued that an American de deposition process, an early deposition of witnesses could be a feature of international arbitration going forward, perhaps with tribunals seeing this as a way in which they can get a first blush of the, uh, uh, to use the term, maybe untainted evidence of key witnesses, particularly maybe in circumstances where it's, early, it's obvious from the statements of case that there is going to be an issue that really turns on that witness evidence. Now, uh, I haven't had that experience yet, um, and I don't know how I would react to that if I was council representation. But from your perspective, I mean, do you think that that's something that tribunals might start to contemplate? Is, could we be moving towards a, a deposition-style process in international arbitration? Jeremy, I'm going to put you on the spot first. Thanks for that. Um, well, anything's possible. Um, and in an appropriate case, maybe a tribunal might see fit to do so. I don't see that becoming the new norm, certainly not at this point in time. Um, I think any changes will be um, evolutionary um, as opposed to revolutionary. Um, and I think we've all become relatively comfortable with, with how evidence is done in international arbitration and the mix that we have. You know, there, there's obviously um, different methods used in different jurisdictions and, and different circumstances. Tribunals will repackage how, how a hearing is dealt with in a different way. But something like that um, in the context of international arbitration in, say, the Middle East or Asia um, or Australia, 
I, I would be surprised to see that at this point in time. Um, but again, in appropriate cases, it may make sense if a tribunal has really significant concerns um, about how a witness's um, evidence may be impacted in those circumstances. Uh, and maybe it's wrong to call it a deposition because, of course, uh, it may be simply that the tribunal might say, actually, I want to hear from these witnesses first, bring them to me in two weeks' time, three weeks' time, whatever. Nic Nicholas, what do you think? Yeah, I, I fully agree with uh, Jeremy, uh, especially where um, lawyers, counsel, arbitrators from civil law jurisdictions are involved in uh, in an arbitration. I think they will be uh, quite reluctant in, in following this type of US-style deposition or whatever you want to call it uh, to follow that because it's simply we are not used to it and uh, doing it in the first time uh, in an international arbitration um, with a high stake uh, case, I think we will all be uh, very reluctant to to do that trial in a real uh, case um, arbitration. So I think if it will uh, be introduced in international arbitration proceedings, it will take quite some time uh, to to make civil law lawyers um, get used to it first. No, thanks, Nicholas. Uh, and I think you're right. And, and actually, it's important to make the point about stakes being very high. And, and actually, our clients, uh, and the, one imagines the tribunal will recognise this, is won't necessarily want to be treated as guinea pigs for these types of processes. Um, but we'll have to wait and see um, how tribunals will approach this. I know at least one arbitrator who is, I think, contemplating this in the right case. Um, so we may see this to come. Quick question on procedural orders, because Jeremy uh, talked about this as well. And Nicholas, you, you referenced the idea that there may be requirements on practitioners to keep more records in terms of how the witness statements were produced, lists of documents. Of course, that all increases cost. So there is a tension here as well between purity and protection of evidence versus cost um, and of course arbitration is often chosen for the idea that it represents a more flexible and a potentially efficient process to dispute resolution than perhaps court litigation so are we do we have attention there as a tribunal would you want to be prescriptive or are you going to perhaps just as you i think put it earlier recognize that there is an awareness point here and it's just something the tribunal will have to re reflect what do you think nicholas I would be rather reluctant in uh, being too prescriptive uh, with regard to, to the measures that uh, necessarily need to be taken by, by counsel in international arbitration proceedings. I think, um, as I mentioned before, the costs is, is a major concern of the users of international arbitration, and we should really be very careful in introducing new rules, uh, making arbitrations more burdensome. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Jeremy, do you have anything to add? You know, look, I agree with what Nicholas said. Um, I'd be concerned about being overly prescriptive as well. Um, one, because it could unduly add to the cost and the complexities you identified, Guy. But also, I'd, I'd be a bit concerned about, you know, the, the effect that might have on the enforceability of an award down the track. Um, if, if you've been overly prescriptive, a party who feels you've been unfair could seek to impugn the award on that basis. Um, so I think it's it's going to be a case-by-case -case consideration of what's appropriate to the circumstances of each case. Yeah, no, exactly right. And, and Jeremy, thanks for that. And actually, I think from my perspective, I'm, I'm interested to see the direction that tribunals take. Um, I could certainly see that tribunals would welcome at least the opportunity to have a discussion with the parties, perhaps at the procedural hearing. 
Um, uh, and of course, there is at least an, an, uh, an, an interest in all parties having an approach which creates a level playing field, because you wouldn't necessarily want one um, uh, party taking a particular and very careful course and then the other doing something entirely different. So from a tribunal's perspective, actually creating something of consistency in approach, I think, can be quite valuable. But I think, Nicholas, as you said, this is really the beginning of a journey rather than perhaps the end. So we're going to have to look at this much more. Jeremy, you, you rightly made the point that these are issues of actually quite some significant uh, importance for corporate counsel as well. So I'm sure that there will be lots of discussions with corporate counsel in relation to that. Well, I think that's uh, time for us to conclude. So thank you both for your contributions today. Very much appreciated. Uh, thank you to everyone who is tuning in to listen. Our next podcast, uh, I think, will be on the IBA rules, which themselves have been recently amended in a very small way. But we're also going to have a wider discussion on those rules uh, and also compare them with the much newer Prague rules. Until then, thank you very much.